Good morning. Good morning. And it's good to be back with you guys, and I should be here for some time now. You guys might be stuck with me now, so. <laughs> so good to be back. Uh, let's open with prayer, and then I've got a few announcements. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and for the way you run your universe and the principles that you have uh, designed things to operate upon and how you've revealed yourself to us and your interventions through time and history. We ask that you will join us today, enlighten our minds, and help us draw the deep truths from the well of your, your eternity. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And then, Dean, will you come out here for a minute, please? So Dean today is turning 20 for the third time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So let's sing happy birthday to Dean this morning. Okay. <laughs> and I think you all know how much Dean does that, that makes our resources available outside this circle, and we sure appreciate Dean. We are doing lesson number eight in the quarterly, the co- three cosmic messages, and the title is The Sabbath in the End. And I'm going to tell you right now that this lesson is probably going to go longer than our normal time frame because there's a lot to disentangle and a lot to, I think, expose and and bring to light on this subject. When you hear the title, The Sabbath in the End, what comes to mind? Sunday Law. She said Sunday Law. I was going to say, has any of you ever heard any presentations anywhere in your Christian experience in relationship to the Sabbath and end time? You ever heard presentations on this? All my life. All your life, all your life. Mm -hmm. And you said something about Sunday Laws. How has it typically been presented? The Sabbath in the End has been presented. Can, you, can anybody summarize the, the idea of, of its importance? It will be a test yes. of our obedience. A test of obedience. Have you ever heard that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Right. So is the final issue in the war between Christ and Satan a test over which day you attend church? No. no. Is the issue in our salvation, our preparation to see Jesus face to face, simply about the hours in which you attend a group worship service? If a person is absolutely settled and insists on worshiping on the Bible Sabbath, and they won't be shaken from it, they'd go to prison before they would break it, does that guarantee they get the the seal of God and avoid the mark of the beast? No. 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 Those who crucified Christ 2,000 years ago wanted him off the cross by sunset on Friday to do what? To keep the Bible Sabbath. Does Satan care if a group of people worships on the Bible Sabbath as long as they worship him on the Bible Sabbath? (laughs) And speaking of those crucifiers of our Lord 2,000 years ago, Jesus said the following words in John 8, 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. So we have a, a, a group of people keeping the Bible Sabbath who are, according to Jesus, children of Satan. Wow. Wow. Have I misstated that? No. Doesn't that mean that to whatever degree the Sabbath is involved in end-time events, or any events in human history, 
It must mean or be more than simply what day of the week one avoids work and attends worship. It has to be more than that. So do these questions that I've just asked and these examples from history that I've just given, does that mean then that it really doesn't matter, that the Sabbath has no importance? Nope. Or has no divine value? No. No, it means that any gift that God gives us can be misused and misapplied to cause harm. God has given us food to eat and water to drink. Can people misuse food to cause disease and illness and drown people with water? God has given us the gift of marriage. Can people abuse the privileges of marriage to harm their spouses? Yes. So this is not a question about what day of the week is the Bible Sabbath. Any serious Bible student knows that the Bible Sabbath is sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. Regardless of their religion or their, their creed, they all know that's what the Bible is. And the Jewish people today are still keeping the same Bible Sabbath they kept in Jesus' time, and they've never stopped doing it. The questions before us are, what is the purpose of the Sabbath? How are we to understand and experience it? What impact does the Sabbath have upon who we understand God to be in our relationship with him? What role does the Sabbath have in for human beings today? And is there a great controversy function for the Sabbath? Is it important as we approach the second coming of Christ? These are the questions that I think are, are, are before us today. Our lesson is focusing our attention upon the importance of Sabbath as we approach the second coming of Christ. And when you hear that title and that concern... What is the first question that I am likely to ask of you as we try to answer that question? What what law lens are we looking through? And the traditional way that you've already told me here that you've had it presented to you in the past, that traditional way of doing it, the historic way both in Judaism and in Adventism is most often presented which way? Which law lens is it presented through typically? The imposed law. Yeah, the legal way. That's exactly right. Consider this quotation out of a book called The Sabbath in Scripture and History, published by the Review and Herald. In an arbitrary manner, God appointed that on the seventh day we should come to rest with his creation in a particular way. He filled this day with a content that is uncontaminated by anything related to the cyclical changes of nature or the movements of heavenly bodies. The content is the idea of the absolute sovereignty of God, a sovereignty unqualified even by an indirect cognizance of the natural movements of time and rhythms of life. As the Christian takes heed of the Sabbath day and keeps it holy, he does so purely in answer to God's command and simply because God is the creator. Thus the Sabbath command comes nearer to being a true measure of spirituality than any of the other commandments. And as in the days of Israel of old, it is often more a test of loyalty to God than any of the others. Oh, wow. Ah, That's a lot of cringing. (laughs) So we're making that really important. If the Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience, what type of law is the Sabbath a part of? It's an imposed. That's the kind of law sinners make up. That's what we do. 
it would be an imposed law that would require God to enforce it with inflicted punishment. And if that were the case, what kind of God would God be? An arbitrary God who makes up arbitrary rules and uses his power arbitrarily to inflict arbitrary punishments on those who who cannot, uh, because he cannot forgive rule-breaking unless there is some punishment applied, because if he forgives rule-breaking without punishment, then there's no justice. And there's nothing inherently wrong with breaking it. There's nothing inherently wrong, except you're defying the authority of the one who gave the rule. This is Satan. Understand, what I just described is Satan's fantasy, delusion, false narrative, and lie about God. Consider these historical quotes from one of the founders of the SDA church who valued highly the Bible Sabbath, and put these quotes together in your discernment and understanding about the purpose and role of the Sabbath... God's law, government, methods, justice, and then consider how the Sabbath is presented in the quote that I just read from the Review and Herald. So this is Desire of Ages 761. In the opening of the great controversy, so this, this is where? In heaven. In heaven. Satan had declared. So Satan is bringing evidence? No. Are declarations and evidences the same thing? No. No, this is a, this is a, this is a claim. This is a, a, a verbal position. Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. When men broke the law of God and defied his will, Satan exalted. It was proved, he declared, that the law could not be obeyed. Man could not be forgiven because he, after his rebellion, had been banished from heaven, Satan claimed that the human race must forever be shut out of God's favor. God could not be just, he urged, Satan urged, and yet show mercy to the sinner. We're going to come back to that thought in a moment. And the next quote. That was before the Sabbath was created. Maybe. Excellent insight. Excellent, yes. And this is out of Testimonies to the Church, volume 5, page 738. From the beginning, where do you think that's happening? Again, before earth was even made. From the beginning, it has been Satan's study plan to cause men, and this is after it spread here, to forget God that he might secure them to himself. Hence, he has sought to misrepresent the character of God, to lead men to cherish a false conception of him. The creator has been presented to their minds as clothed with the attributes of the prince of evil himself. A hyphen here, a connecting, you know, uh, M dash. So this means these are the attributes that are Satan's attributes that this author is saying as arbitrary, severe, and unforgiving. That he might be feared, that God might be feared, shunned, and even hated by men. Satan hoped to so confuse the minds of those whom he had deceived that they would put God out of their knowledge. Then he would obliterate the divine image in man and impress his own likeness upon the soul. He would imbue men with his own spirit and make them captives according to his will. What is Satan's method of attacking God as described in these two paragraphs? He has a method. He has a strategy. By saying he's arbitrary. By alleging God is arbitrary, and he did it in a particular subject matter. He attacked something of God's to his law. Both are so both. He he alleges God's arbitrary because God's law is like this. 
And this is how God's law functions. It functions like a system of made-up rules like we make up, and therefore God has to make up punishments, and God has to use his power to inflict punishments. This is how he attacks. Thus God, in this construct, in this fantasy, in this delusional world that Satan makes up, God becomes the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death as punishment for sin. He's the one who, in justice, we're told, uses power to cause torture in hell and then death. So he's the one from whom we need to be protected. We need an intercessor, a mediator to stand between us and him and plead to him some payment, some legal thing, something that will influence him in a way that will assuage and propitiate his wrath. It's all pagan. It's Satan's version of God. God is unforgiving. He cannot forgive you unless he gets the proper legal payment. And then it's not forgiveness. It's debt paid. God then is presented as arbitrary. The Sabbath is arbitrary, made up, and God is presented as severe and unforgiving. He requires legal payments of of a human blood sacrifice. He cannot forgive outright. And this is exactly how the church has presented him and presented the Sabbath. And this misrepresents God. It misrepresents the end time message. It misrepresents God's justice. And it actually obstructs the final message of mercy and the three angels' message in the gospel from going to the world. It's in the way. Satan declared that God could not be just, yet show mercy to the sinner. We just read that in the quote from Desire of Ages 761. That was his declaration. And I want to let you know something. It is impossible to be both just and merciful to the sinner through imposed law. If you accept the idea that God's law works like human law, then you will find yourself in a world where justice and mercy cannot be harmonized. I'll give you an example. It is not just or right to arbitrarily and artificially inflict a punishment upon an innocent person and then declare the actual guilty person is innocent because you received the payment of the punishment upon the innocent. This is irrational. It's nonsense. Makes God out to be untrustworthy. Thus, those who believe this must dethrone their God-given reasoning abilities and believe such nonsense without understanding. Then they believe based on the rule of authority. Blind faith, because the priest, pastor, pope, parent, or they're told the Bible says so, God says so, the red leather books say so. Don't ask questions, have faith. It's destructive to the image of God and man, this theory. If God's law functions like human law, then Satan's position is true. You cannot have justice and show mercy to the sinner. Because if you punish an innocent in their place, that's not just. It's unjust to do that. And we all know it. And as long as the church presents God's laws functioning like human law, they are misrepresenting God and obstructing the plan of salvation. Worse, they are contributing to the rebellion against God and leading people to reject God altogether. But it's the law that is requiring the death or the punishment. 
Yeah, this is what they will often say. God doesn't require it. His law does. And then you say, and where does his law originate? In his character. It's a transcript. Of, so, and, so, and who made the law? Well, God did. Well, then for it's all, it's all, uh, it's, the, it's, the, it's the fancy Texas two-step, you know? <laughs> Don't look here, look here. It's the magician's trick. Hey, watch this hand while I'm getting you with this hand. It's a big scam. So and I, I've had that actually presented to me by some leaders in this community. And I put it right back on them, just like I said. And where, do, and where does the law come from? Who's the one who establishes it? Who sustains it? Whose, whose character is a transcript of? Therefore, it goes right back to God. And they had no argument to that. But they try to, for most people who don't ask the follow-up question, to try to distance it away from God to his law. He has to sustain the law. You're exactly right. Now, can we explain... If we reject human law and embrace God as creator and understand his law or the laws upon which reality operate, design law, now can we can explain how justice and mercy can absolutely harmonize perfectly? Because God always does what is right and just, what is in harmony with his nature and his character and law of love, And what does the justice of love require one to do if they are a righteous individual and they see another person dying from a condition that they could remedy? If you see a person dying of a condition that you could remedy and you have love and you act on the justice of love, what do you do? Offer the remedy. Offer the remedy. So if your child disobeys your rule, to never touch the medicine in the medicine cabinet. But under the temptation of friends, your adolescent child has one of those pill parties. I don't know if you've read about them in the news that become popular, where all the kids come together and bring the prescriptions that they've gathered from their their parents' and grandparents' homes, and they pour them all in a big bowl, and then the kids reach in and grab handfuls of pills and drink it with alcohol, and swallow the pills with alcohol. And, and if your child, who you've told never touch medicines, you've got a rule, don't ever touch them. They break the rule and have a pill party. And, and they take a bunch of these pills with alcohol. And you walk in and your child is seizing and f- on the floor and foaming at the mouth. As a direct result of disobeying your rule. What would justice, the justice of love, require of you? Would you whip out your belt and begin to beat them to make sure they are properly punished for their disobedience? Would you throw gasoline upon them and light them on fire to give them proper torment before executing them for their sin? Would you take one of, their, one of your other children, their siblings, and, and ask if any of them love their brother enough to accept their brother's punishment in their place? And assuming one of them said yes, would you shove a bunch of pills down their throat and then burn them to death to ensure the legal justice and penalties were paid to assuage your anger and wrath and ins- uh, and so that you don't have to kill your other child who's already dying from a toxic overdose? And then would you declare, after having done that, would you then declare that the one dying of the overdose is actually perfectly healthy even though they're still dying? Does that sound crazy to you? That's penal substitution theology. That's common Christianity. That's what's being taught in the churches around America and around the world. Because they accept the lie that God's law works like human law. Again, you walk in, your child has disobeyed your rules. 
They're seizing and foaming in the mouth. They're dying as a consequence of their choice. What does the justice of love require of you? Would you immediately intervene to provide remedy to your dying child to save and heal them? And if necessary, would you put them on an artificial life support machine while the remedy is working? Would you do that? That is the history of this planet, folks. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, the Bible says God left the sins be committed beforehand unpunished. He intervened to suspend or hold at bay the full consequences of what sin does, which is eternal non-existence. And he created an artificial bubble of reality in which his life-giving glory is shielded from this planet. The angels in heaven, they're, they're described as being, beings of fire and they, and they live in this life-giving glory and, and rivers of fire come out. But earth is now in an artificial bubble protected from the full life-giving glory of God's presence because we can't tolerate it because we're sick. And God allowed in grace an artificial state of existence to operate for a brief time, what we call first death, where the body stops functioning, but the individuality sleeps and waits for a resurrection. This is God allowing the time for for the remedy to be developed and applied. It's God's grace holding at bay the full results. Paul said it this way in Romans 3, 25 and 26. God sent sent him, Jesus, to die in our place to take away our sins, to take away our sickness, our terminal condition, the corruption, the corrosion, not to take away the punishment. We receive forgiveness through faith in the blood of Jesus' death. This shows that God always does what is right and fair. And And in the past... When he, was pain, when he was patient and did not punish people for their sins, and God gave Jesus to show today that he does what is right. God did this to, so that he could judge rightly and he could be, make right any person who has faith in Jesus. Notice what this is saying. God always does what's right, and what's right is to heal and to restore, and he sent Jesus to be the remedy, the cure. And he intervened to hold at bay what sin would naturally do which is eternal separation. So if your child's actions cause them to experience after taking these pills, you've got them on artificial life support. They've been saved. They're not going to die of the toxic overdose, but their actions damage their kidneys and they'll have renal failure. And they need a kidney transplant in order to actually thrive and, and have life and not die of renal failure now. What would you do? What does the justice of love require the parent to do for their child? You donate them a kidney. And would this donation of your kidney be required by law? No. I tricked you. (laughs) What about the laws of health? Do the laws of health require a functioning kidney? So if you want to restore your child to the laws of health, you need to somehow give them a kidney that works. Now, our, our very primitive medical technology, we donate the kidney because we can't cure and create a new kidney that works perfectly for them. But you get the metaphor. The metaphor has some certain limits. In providing the new kidney, you are restoring your child to harmony with the law through sacrifice of yourself. Notice what's happening here. There's a, a, a law process happening, but it's not a legal process. 
Your sacrifice is required in this scenario to give what your child needs to put them in harmony with the law upon which life operates. Do you all see it? Yes. This is why Christ had to come. In donating your kidney, are you negating or doing away with the law? The laws of health? Not at all. Your sacrifice actually confirms and sustains that the law cannot be changed to meet your child in their dying state. Only the child can be changed to be restored back into harmony with the law. And that's why the new covenant, I'll write my law in your hearts and minds, God's law cannot be changed to meet sinners in their sin. Only sinners can be changed to be put in harmony with the law. And that's what Christ came to achieve. Now, I had to lay all that out, so now we can actually talk about the Sabbath. (laughs) As we discuss the Sabbath question, it comes down to whether we understand it through imposed or designed law. If we understand it through imposed law, then we take this gift God has given us and use it to advance Satan's warfare against God. Just as the Jews did 2,000 years ago when the Lord of the Sabbath stood before them and they acted to kill him for Sabbath-breaking, among other things. As we continue our exploration of the Sabbath, consider these historical quotes, again, from what I believe is the most influential founder of the Adventist church. This first is Great Controversy, 582. The last great conflict between truth and error... Yeah, between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle we are now entering, a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fable and tradition. And the next is out of Prophets and Kings 6.25. There is no such thing as weakening or strengthening the law of Jehovah. As it has been, so it is. It always has been and always will be, holy, just, and good, complete in itself. It cannot be repealed or changed. To honor or dishonor it is but the speech of men. Between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah will come the last great conflict of the controversy between truth and error. Upon this battle we are now entering, a battle not between rival churches contending for for the supremacy, but between the religion of the Bible and the religions of fable and tradition. The last great conflict... Between truth and error, the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. What did it say about the uh, keeping it holy? It said something about keeping it holy. I want to understand that. You can't make it more holy. No, to honor or dishonor. Honor or dishonor is just the speech of truth. Yeah, yeah. So it says it has always been, as always will be, holy, just, and good, complete in itself. It cannot be revealed. To honor or dishonor is but the speech of men. So the, the law is holy, just, and good. If you agree with these quotations, then it raises some serious questions about the role of the Sabbath in the final issues. Such as, when Satan began his war in heaven, was there a Sabbath? No. 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 Mark 2, 27, 28, Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Consider the truths in this short text. Several truths, very, very potent. The Sabbath was made, Made. just like the earth was made. The sun and moon were made. The plants and animals were made. Adam and Eve were made. The Sabbath was made. Therefore, the Sabbath has a beginning. 
an origination point, and that point was the end of creation week of this planet, which was after Satan's rebellion began in heaven. Thus, the war in heaven, which began over God's law and will end over God's law, did not begin with a question over the Sabbath. This should raise serious questions about how we understand the role of the Sabbath as things come to an end. Further, Jesus' statement tells us the Sabbath was made for human beings, not for angels. This indicates that the Sabbath was not a question of obedience in heaven for the angelic host when the rebellion started, but somehow became valuable and beneficial after the rebellion started. It was somehow important. So the next point to note is that the Sabbath was created after sin entered. The universe was given as a gift to humans before sin took root on planet Earth, before Adam and Eve sinned. So the Sabbath was created after sin entered the universe, but before Adam and Eve sinned. This indicates it was not a rule to be obeyed, but had another purpose. Adam and Eve created in a universe in which Satan's rebelling, and God, in his wisdom, created a Sabbath day for human beings, for Adam and Eve and, and, and their descendants, that the angels didn't have. And it's somehow part of God's law, but it's not a rule to obey in Eden. Let's, let's, let's unpack that a little further. So think, what was the purpose or intention of God in creating the Sabbath and giving it as a gift to human beings? Consider the origins of the weekly seventh-day Sabbath. Which day of the week? I just said, it's the seventh day, right? But which day of existence was the Sabbath, the first Sabbath for Adam and Eve? First day one, day two. Yeah, it was day two for them. They had Friday, at least part of Friday, and then they went into on day two. That's right. If, if the Sabbath was to be humanity's seventh day, then we would worship on Thursday. The seventh day for Adam and Eve of their existence was Thursday. Not Sabbath. That was their second day. Was the purpose of Sabbath in Eden so that Adam and Eve could physically rest and recover from a hard work week? (laughs) What was the condition of the world when the Sabbath was made? Perfect. So consider the types of activities that Adam and Eve did during the six other days of the week, not the Sabbath. Their six work days. Let's think of the activities they would do, as far as we can discern from what Scripture tells us. Would they go for walks in nature? Yes. Study nature? Yes. Interact with the animals? Walk with God daily in the cool of the day. Appreciate God and all that he has done in creating the world. Talk with angels. Did they have weeds to pull? Planting to do? Harvesting and barns to fill? Fertilizing, irrigating, and pesticides to spread? Houses to build? Laundry, vacuuming, and dishes to wash? Was there anything for them to do on their six work days that we would call work today? In fact, if you think about their six work days and the activities they were doing on their six work days, isn't that very similar to the things you like to do on Sabbath? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you considered that before? Nope. Get your mind around this idea. So did the Sabbath 
in Eden have a purpose in the great controversy? No. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So think about, did Adam and Eve have any of these activities during their Sabbath hours? We just kind of explored what they might have been doing on their work week. What about their Sabbath hours? Did they they attend church services? Communion. They have a communion ceremony they help. Uh, Go to confession, do penance, pay tithes, bring offerings. Would they, or would they still walk in nature, pick fruits of the trees to eat, interact with the animals, converse with God and angels? So what was different for Adam and Eve about the Sabbath than the other days of the week for them in their daily activities? Do you think they, well, Sabbath is the day we worship God. The rest of the week, we don't worship him. We wait till Sabbath to worship him. Do you think that's what was happening? Or were they worshiping God all week? All week. And then hereafter, when we believe we come together, and it's often presented, the whole universe gathers every Sabbath to worship God. rest of the week, we're not worshiping, just on Sabbath. Does that sound right to anybody? No. No. So was the difference in Eden about the Sabbath and the other six days primarily about Adam and Eve's behavior and activities or something else? Could the purpose of the Sabbath in Eden be in what the day itself revealed? Could it be what it, the day itself represented? And could the Sabbath day reveal something about God that God wants every human since creation of this planet to understand both intellectually and experientially about him. And what's the seal of God? That we are so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, which is experientially, that we can't be moved? Hmm. Could the Sabbath be different from the other six days of the week, not because of what Adam and Eve did differently, but because of what God did differently on the seventh day? Throughout your life, has your attention primarily been regarding Sabbath on what God did differently or on what we are supposed to do differently? Could it be that the purpose for which the Sabbath was created was to be a reminder, a sign, a signal, an indicator, a testament, an evidence, a memorial, a flag, a pennant, a signet, a revelation of God's character, methods, principles, law, and form of government Mm -hmm. that we are to remember how God governs? The Sabbath was made by God, and it was made holy, blessed, sanctified, and apart, and set apart. How? Was the Sabbath made holy by legislation? Was the Sabbath made holy by declaration? Remember, Satan declared in heaven certain things. Is that how God rolls? He just declares certain things. Or was the Sabbath made holy by design and actual action? Did God conduct and do something different in regard to the Sabbath day than he did the other six days of creation this week? Yes, he rested. So the Sabbath is set apart at and by creation, by the actions of God in its origins. That is not declarative. Yes. When did God tell them about uh, Satan and the tree and all that? Because when Adam and Eve were created... They didn't know anything about the first six days. I mean, they weren't there. So if you create them at the end of the sixth day, 
they had a little time at night, and the next day was, uh, wasn't new, I mean, it was new to them, but it wasn't. So it, when you say when, when, very, if you're saying when, as in how many minutes after their creation were they informed, we, we don't have the yeah. a, a spe- specified timeline, but we have information that they were told uh, adequately enough prior to their encounter at the Tree of Knowledge and Good and Evil, that they had been warned and counseled against the enemy. And the angels came and counseled them, and not just God himself. And so they had this warning, but I can't give you how many minutes, hours, or seconds from the moment of their awakening before he actually had that conversation. I don't know that. On the next day, Sabbath? Certainly could have been on Sabbath. But it was very quickly. But they, they had the knowledge necessary to avoid falling into sin prior to ever encountering the, the, the serpent at the tree. So what did God do on days one through six of creation week? He exercised. He expended divine power and energy to create. What did God do on day seven? He ceased using power. He rested. And what is the significance of this in the context of the war? But Adam and Eve didn't know that. He used his power to create those days because they, I mean, they weren't. They, they didn't know it by observation, but they knew it by education in the same way we. Do we know what God did on the six days? Were we there to observe it? No. So do we know it by, observa- by observation? No. no. The angels knew it by observation. We know it by revelation, and there's different types of revelation. They knew it by direct revelation. God revealed it to them. Now, we make assumptions that God revealed it by verbal communication. Well, have you ever showed your children a videotape of something that happened before they were born? Mm-hmm. <laughs> have you ever done that? Yes. Are you educating them about things prior to their birth that they did not, were not there to observe? Yes. Is it only by verbal description or are they actually seeing? Do you think God couldn't have had them watch in some recording three-dimensional hollow space of some kind? Here's what I did before you were woke up. Here's what creation looked like in creation week. I mean, we make a lot of assumptions that they were ignorant of this. I think that's, that's an assumption. Based on our limited human. They weren't there to observe, but I have no doubt they were fully educated with data that was irrefutable and they had no doubt that God created over six days. So what was happening in the rest of the universe when Sabbath was made? There was already a war. Satan's rebellion had already started. And Satan's allegations were not that God was powerless, but that God was abusive. He uses power arbitrarily. He sets up rules. He enforces through threats. What does it reveal about God that in the context of this rebellion of his right to rule, that instead of using power... To force every knee to bow, God instead created new intelligent life, shared with this new intelligent life the power to create beings in their own image, gave them a new, a new domain where they could have dominion and govern as they freely choose to, to govern. And then God steps back, stops using power. I rest my case. Consider for yourself the evidence and come to your own conclusion and how I govern and wield and create. And understand, the earth is a microcosm of the whole universe. Adam and Eve stand in, representative of the Godhead, governing a, a habitation with creatures that have different levels of intelligence and capacities for interactions that are significantly below that of Adam and Eve as we are significantly below that of an infinite God. 
And this represents the cosmos and all the various intelligences. As we have all these different species of animals on the planet representing all the different intelligences from all the different worlds. And Adam and Eve were to govern the planet as God governs the whole universe. It was a, it was a lesson book. And so 1 Corinthians 4.9 says the, that we are a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. They're watching. And God rests. See how I designed. See how I use power. See how I leave you free to decide for yourself. Does this fact, this action by God in establishing the Sabbath as a day set apart from all other days by his choice to not use power, to not coerce, to not force, to not seek to inflict punishment for rebellion, but to leave his creatures free, does this have any utility or value or worth or purpose in this war? Is there some divine power, divine power attached and contained within the Sabbath? Some power we need to be victorious in the controversy. Is there? Well, Paul wrote this in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. What is this power that Paul is referring to that is found in the gospel? Is this the power of physical might he's referring to in the gospel? What kind of power is in the gospel? Power to change our lives. The power to change our lives, okay. But can, you do, can, you, can we pull it out? What kind of power changes lives? Pardon? Knowledge of God. Knowledge of God, which is what type of power? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is the spirit of two elements. Truth and love. Truth and love. So the knowledge of God would be the truth. And the love experience would be the experience of God, which is another way to understand or know the truth. So the power of the gospel is the good news about God, the truth of who he is, his methods that we know cognitively and experientially, intellectually and spiritually. Is this same good news power, truth and love, about God and his character contained in the Sabbath? Say that again. Is the same gospel good news power about God, the truth of who he is, how he functions, the way his law works, his character, his methods, or is it contained and embodied within the Sabbath? Truth, love, and freedom. Yes, he presented truth through his actions during creation week in love and created an entire ecosystem built and operating on the law of love built right into nature itself, sharing creative power and then leaves his children free to decide for themselves truth, love, and freedom as he rests on the Sabbath day embodied in this time period, the the gospel truth. What kind of war and what kind of weapons do we wield? And do you think this was not the same type of weaponry that was being wielded in heaven when, when, and it says, There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The war. The the Greek is polemos, from where we get polemic. It is a war of ideas, a war of words. This war that broke out in heaven was not a physical war. It was a war of concepts and ideas. Who are you going to believe? Satan's the father of lies. And remember, we read this quote earlier. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. 
We are in a war between two ways of thinking, two ways of understanding, two ways of believing, functioning, and acting. One is reality-based. One is fable and fantasy-based. One is truth-based. The other is founded on lies. One is described as reality. The other is fantasy And another word for fantasy is falsehood or artificial or not real or simulated, as in simulated realities or virtual worlds. Satan is the father of lies and he wants people to believe that whatever we decide to think, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. Whatever we decide to think, desire, believe, is the way things actually work that our so-called truth defines our reality and we can create our own reality and we can create artificial worlds and virtual worlds and be anything we choose, that in this satanic, delusional, false, fable world, when we say there is no such thing as male and female, there is no such thing as male and female. And we say there's no such thing as good and evil, there is no such thing as good and evil. It is the satanic delusion, there's only me, myself, and I, and what I want in a world divorced of eternal reality, divorced from the laws that creator built reality to operate upon, where every one of us can be our own God. Do you see it? Yes. I'm trying to ignore you, but go ahead. Okay. I'm getting this right. I want to know if I'm getting it right. Is the fourth commandment says, in it thou shalt not do any work. Yep. So it's not just talking about physical work, but actual, the spiritual work that needs to be done in the heart. No. no. So I'm going to put you off because okay. I'm in the middle of a big point. Okay. okay. Well, don't forget me. Yeah. <laughs> Does the Sabbath have any power to refute this fable world, this delusional world that your truth is your truth? Your imagination can create any reality that you want and make it real. Does the Sabbath have any power to refute this? Does the Sabbath declare every week that there is a creator God who built reality and his laws are the laws that reality actually function upon? And no human invention, fantasy, imagination, declaration, proclamation, legislation can ever change the laws that God built reality to function upon, including a seven-day weekly cycle that is not tied to the solar bodies moving. Yet every culture through all history operates on a seven-day weekly cycle. Where did that seven-day weekly cycle come from? Every week the Sabbath declares it was, we were created in a seven-day week by a creator God. And the Sabbath reminds us of reality, that our fantasies don't change that. We may believe there is no male and female, that any person can simply choose what they want their gender to be. But the Bible says that leaving objective reality and making up one's own belief system is delusional. And I'm not suggesting there aren't people that struggle with gender identity. That's not the question here. We're not talking about people who have, have serious heart and identity issues. We need to be compassionate and loving. We're talking about they struggle with that gender identity because there's actually two genders and they're not comfortable in the one they're in. And when they say, I'm a, I'm a woman in a man's body, or man, that's because they recognize there's a different position that they want to uh, move towards. If there wasn't these different objective realities, then they wouldn't have any frustrations. Let me put it this way. You can't have a transcontinental flight if there are no continents. <laughs> and you can't have transgender if there are no genders. 
So with all that in mind, I'm going to read to you Psalms chapter 2 from the remedy. Consider what's happening in the world today, this idea of reality and this idea of fantasy, this idea of people making up their own beliefs. And just, I just, came, I just was reviewing the remedy Psalms and this just struck me. I want to share it with you. Why are the nations of this selfish world angry at God's character of love? Why do their people plot in vain against his design? World leaders take their stand and the rulers unite together against the creator and his design for life and against the one anointed to be our remedy. They say, let us break free from God's design and reject God's protocols for life and health. The creator, who from heaven sustains reality, hates their foolishness. And the Lord knows their words don't change reality. They're just meaningless noise. He fiercely corrects their misunderstandings and persistently assails their false perspectives, instructing them, I have chosen who will reign in Zion. My king will rule in sinless perfection. The king will make God's healing plan known. God said to me, you are my son. Today, my fatherhood to you has, been become, has become known. Ask me and I will give you all the nations. The entire world will be yours. You will govern them with an unbreakable shepherd's rod of truth and love, reality. You will destroy selfishness and crush their ability to coerce and deceive like iron crushes pottery. Therefore, worldly rulers, wise up. You who govern the earth have been warned as to how reality works. So with humble admiration, live in harmony with God and his design. Celebrate him with fervor. Accept the son with loving heart, lest he let you go to die from your terminal condition, for he may release you to your choice at any moment. Happy and healthy are those who abide in him. Wow. wow. Boy, do you, see that ha- do you see that being acted out in the world today? Yes. yes. God is the creator of reality. His laws are the protocol reality functions upon. Fantasy, make-believe, imagination do not change reality. And the Sabbath is part of our reality. But how does the Sabbath fit in? The war is over ideas, attitudes, beliefs, love, and trust. God created the Sabbath in the middle of the war. And it was created as a gift for humans. It is designed by God to help us cooperate with God in winning the war over sin in our own lives. How? When Lucifer rebelled in heaven, he did not allege God was powerless, but he alleged that God was untrustworthy in wielding his power and how he uses it. And he made up the imperial law lies that we've already talked about. Satan suggested that we could have a better existence and angels could have a better, if they were free from all law that laws restrain and put rulers over us and take our liberties. And so Satan advocated this idea of lawlessness, free from all law that governs reality. And when you go down that trail, the trail that Satan promises is a better world, the, 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 the pathway of lawlessness, it results in chaos, disorder, pain, suffering, fear, guilt, shame, selfishness, and death. See what's happening in the world today. Do you see world leaders advancing lawlessness? And do you see the world becoming a better place? No, no. And so Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 4, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and this is where we are, the Lord's coming soon, 
and are being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled and alarmed by some prophecy report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Why is he doomed? For the same way that if you tie a plastic bag over your head and break the law of respiration, you are doomed to die. The only outcome from breaking away from God's laws upon which life is built is destruction. He's doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself of everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. This is arbitrary imperial law systems. Do you see the chaos happening in our world? Do you see as people reject God as creator and build their own virtual fantasy, artificial worlds, pass laws? No, no. when I say this again, be very clear here. I said past laws. I'm not focusing on individuals struggling with identity problems. We should be compassionate and loving to those people. I'll also tell you something else as an aside you may or may not have heard because it's really, you understand when you read media, much of it is corrupted and, 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 and shaped to try to make you believe certain things. What I understand the data shows, and this goes back prior to the whole transgender movement that has really burst on the scene the last five years or so, that there's always been individuals who have struggled with gender identity. And there's been good research uh, in the last 30 years or so, prior to the whole transgender movement, that if you just give encouraging, supportive, loving care to these adolescents who are confused about their gender identity, that over 90% of them, by the time they're 20, settle into their gender and they're very comfortable being a man or a woman. But 80% of them identify as gay. So these are not really, most, so much of the transgendered individuals you're seeing right now are early adolescents struggling with their own sexual orientation questions. I'm a guy at 12 or 13 years of age realizing I'm attracted to guys. I must not really be a guy. I must be a girl. Instead of identifying as gay, they now get down this trail that you actually aren't even a guy. You're a girl in a guy's body. You need to have gender-affirming care. You need to be, have your body mutilated and put on all these hormones, which are quite unhealthy to do, I will tell you, damaging. But this is what, what some of the data that I've seen suggest is happening. I don't think the gay community has fully appreciated that this, most of this gender-affirming care is devastating the gay community, primarily hitting that population. And if they just get supportive, loving care, they'll settle out and become healthy members of society, 80% of them identifying as gay. So what's happening in the world today, though, is not about those individuals that are struggling. It's about the leaders who are passing laws to arbit- that arbitrary declare a man can become a woman and compete in women's sports and use women's bathrooms And we're seeing more division, more hostility, more debasing of the noble qualities of character. Satan is setting himself up in God's spirit temple, proclaiming himself to be God, as Paul wrote in Thessalonians. Do you see this fulfillment, Revelation 18.3, happening right now? For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine. Those are ideas or concepts that make you delusional. You're mad. 
You see the nations passing these laws that are just crazy, maddening. Uh, the maddening wine of her adulteries, the kings of the earth committing adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich with her excessive luxuries. Do you see the merchants advancing this crazy, delusional system of beliefs so they can make more money? The only outcome of rejecting God and his design laws for life, the only possible outcome, is pain, suffering, guilt, shame, and eventual death. There's no other possibility there unless you're healed and restored back to the laws upon which life are built to operate. We need healing. We need to be restored to God's design laws from health. So where does the Sabbath fit in? What role does it play in God's healing as we approach the second coming? Exodus 31, 12, and 13. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must deserve my Sabbath. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy or sanctifies you. The Sabbath and our recognition and observance of it, in some way or manner, is a sign that God makes us holy. Does that mean that our Sabbath-keeping is what makes us holy? Now, remember, circumcision was a sign between Abraham and his descendants and God. Did circumcision actually do anything to make Abraham or his descendants righteous or holy? No. In fact, which came first? Abraham's being made righteous or circumcision? And then the sign, okay? And this is what Paul makes that point very clear in Romans 4, 9 through 12, that his heart being set right with God and being made righteous became before the actual sign. Sabbath is a sign, okay? Can people be physically circumcised without ever having their heart set right with God? Can people obey the Bible's Sabbath and keep it in some various manner or or other and not be set right with God? So, So, then with all that in mind, consider this quotation about where the Sabbath fits in, in our, in God's sanctifying or making us holy. This is out of Testimonies to the Church, volume 6, page 353. All through the week, we are to have the Sabbath in mind and be making preparation to keep it according to the commandment. We are not merely to observe the Sabbath as a legal matter. We are to understand its spiritual bearing upon all the transactions of life. All who regard the Sabbath as a sign between them and God, showing that he is the God who sanctifies them will represent the principles of his government. They will bring into daily practice the laws of his kingdom. Daily it will be their prayer that the sanctification of the Sabbath may rest upon them. Every day they will have the companionship of Christ and will exemplify the perfection of his character. Every day their light will shine forth to others in good works. Does this kind of sound like Adam and Eve in, in the Eden that every day? Uh-huh. Interesting. What's described here, is this describing a one day in seven experience or an all week experience? Every day. The commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. If we commit terrible sins on the Sabbath hours, have we made the Sabbath less holy? No. If we do... Perfect acts of righteousness on the Sabbath day. Have we made the Sabbath more holy? Can we do anything to make the Sabbath more holy or make the Sabbath less holy than it actually is? 
So when we are keeping the Sabbath holy, or actually keeping the Sabbath holy, we're keeping ourselves holy. Ourselves. Mm-hmm. And can a person keep holy one day in seven? <laughs> no. Get your mind around this. Sabbath keeping and observance is way bigger than one day in seven. Way bigger. So the quote above makes perfect sense. The Sabbath is somehow a gift from God that is to be employed by us as a spiritual weapon in our cooperation with God who makes us holy and empowers us to be a priesthood of believers to wield this weapon in some format or fashion to advance his kingdom. So how is the Sabbath to be wielded? Remember, the the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I've used this analogy before, but if I were to say the the gymnasium was made for the students, the students were not made for the gymnasium. Is 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 that confusing or does that make perfect sense? So the Sabbath was made for man is to be used by us in some way, useful to us in some way, a gift to us in some way. How? How? And somehow it's connected to God making us holy. We don't make ourselves holy. Does God make us holy by the exercise of his divine power alone, or is there some part we have to play? Do we have a choice to make? And do our choices have an impact on our salvation, our being made holy? Can God make someone holy while they actively choose to rebel against him? Can a person make themselves holy by anything they do and the hard work that they do apart from God? So there's some type of choosing. And is the Sabbath a tool God has given us for us to use in some way all week long but also on that, those hours to cooperate with him for him making us holy. Understand that salvation is not found in believing the right list of doctrinal beliefs. You understand that, right? Mm-hmm. Salvation is found in trusting the right God. And if one has the right list, but understands that list, including the Sabbath, through the imposed law lens, they have the wrong God. And by beholding, we become changed. And they will believe in an inspired scripture and Bible, seven-day week of creation, the seventh-day Sabbath, tithes, offerings, sanctuary message, health message, and crucify the Lord of the Sabbath and want him off by sunset. Because he broke their rules and didn't do it the way the rules said they're supposed to. It's a legal system. There's only by returning to worshiping the Creator whose laws are design laws that we can understand Bible truths in their right setting. And that setting removes the lies of Satan and results in our trusting God. And when we trust God, we open the heart. And he pours his spirit in Romans 5.5. And there's divine power, supernatural transformation of our desires and motives. We stop living out fear, start living love and trust. And all this love, truth, love, freedom, the principles of God embodied in Sabbath. And so all week long we remember. And so the Sabbath 
is a sign that I am the Lord that sanctifies you or makes you holy. Get your mind around this now. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. The Sabbath is a sign that God sanctifies us and we are to be sanctified or made holy in spirit, soul, and body. Do you see how the Sabbath is a gift that God has provided for us to cooperate with him to be sanctified in spirit, soul, and body? First, the Sabbath is evidence, as I've already outlined in great detail, of God's methods and principles and character and how he operates, which sets us free from the lies of Satan and brings into our mind, which is the soul, the psyche, the individuality, the truths of who God is and helps cleanse our minds from those lies. And we are one back to love and trust. The Sabbath refutes the fantasy world, the fantasy ideas that you can, that your beliefs and attitudes and imagination can make anything you want. When you understand the Sabbath is a reality built into time itself by God that every living being passes through every week, you understand there is an objective reality and that your fantasies don't change that objective reality. And then you seek that reality in relationship with the Creator and harmonize yourself with reality instead of living a delusional world. And the Sabbath brings your spirit into harmony with God as you uh, align yourself with his motives and attitudes and you, your spirit is, is renewed to love and trust and so forth. I'm, I'm going really fast now because I know we're really late. And when doing that, you actually have peace in your mind. You have resolution of your guilt and shame and you don't live an exploitive life and therefore you calm your amygdala and you reduce inflammatory cascades and you actually have a healthier body and the data is very clear people who have regular Sabbath rest actually have health and sanctification of their bodies. They live better. So why are we required to make these choices and a whole lot of choices? We have to choose to study. We have to choose to accept the truth. We have to choose to open the heart. We have to choose to surrender to God. We have to choose to say yes to where he leads and say no to where he warns. We have to choose to close our businesses and our personal pursuits on Sabbath. That's our choice or not. And why do we have to make these choices? Because God doesn't want robots programmed by him or slaves who mindlessly obeys rules out of fear of punishment. He wants our love, our trust, our friendship, our loyalty, our devotion. And the only way he can heal us is with our free will agreement and cooperation. That's why we have to decide and choose. And does the Sabbath provide an opportunity to stop choosing to promote self and trust God? And that's an exercise. And if you exercise something, it gets stronger. And do you understand now why Satan hates the Sabbath? Understand why? If God actually ran the universe the way Satan alleged in those quotes earlier, he makes up rules and he punishes rule breakers, there would be no Sabbath. As soon as God created, he would have said, now I've given the evidence... You guys decide, you either bow or else justice requires I use my power to punish you. Satan, you've got 30 seconds, make your decision, boom, you're gone. Seriously, there would be no Sabbath to think. If Satan, if, if Satan was right, the Sabbath doesn't exist. So the Sabbath's existence every week is proof positive Satan lied about God and how he runs his universe. Now, I can stop here. I'll let you guys decide because I have no place to go. <laughs> but I was actually have some notes to go into the difference between the seal of God and the mark of the beast. I think that's just keep going. Should we, should we go? Please. Okay. So there are longer versions of this idea that, they have, uh, that the Adventist church have historically presented in a variety of ways. 
I'm going to read this short description out of Testimonies of the Church, volume 8, page 117. It says, The sign or seal of God is revealed in the observance of the seventh-day Sabbath, the Lord's memorial of creation. The mark of the beast is the opposite of this, the observance of the first day of the week. Does that refute everything I've said in class today? It just comes down to which day you go to church. Which day you observe, that's it. Because this is... So, so when you read statements like this, what's the first question you should ask? What law lens are you reading it through? If you read it through the human law lens, then it's simply behavioral. Were you going 35 in a 30 zone? You're guilty. Were you not watching on that? What? It's, it's all behavioral, external, rules-oriented. This is how this is often, statements like this are often understood. What's the design law way of understanding this? Giving you a lot of information today. You feel like your brains are overwhelmed right now, popping, <laughs> filled up. Well, what is a mark or a sign? It's a symbol that stands or signifies something else. Yes or no? Yes. So these two days of worship stand as signs or symbols or marks of something else. They're not the reality, folks. And what do they stand as signs or marks of? Worship. What do you think God is like and, and how he operates? Mm-hmm. I agree with both of those statements. And a, and, a, and, a, and a more basic or even foundational way to say that is, they stand as two types, signs as two types of governments, laws, or ways of governing. And we talked about this, so I'm going to review. Now you guys are going to answer. This, this is actually quiz time. How did the Sabbath become a day set apart from all other days? How? By creation. Thus, it's a sign or a mark of the creator. And what kind of laws do creation, does creation operate upon? Design. Design laws. So the Sabbath is a sign of creatorship and creator law, which is design law. How did the first day of the week become a day set apart as a worship day? Legislation. Legislation. Councils of men making a rule. It's not actually about the day. They could have done it on a Thursday, a Wednesday, a Tuesday, a Friday. It really doesn't matter. It's simply, it's symbolic of imposed law. So it symbolizes a system run on human-type law which requires external oversight and inflictions of punishments. So these days symbolize two systems of governing and two two ways of, of rulership. So consider the days as flags of two different governments. You could even say seals. You know, America has its seal, okay? Two flags. The flags are not the government. They're only signs, marks, or symbols of the government. The flag of the United States, get your mind around this object lesson, has historically stood for liberty and equality of all persons in a land of opportunity. That's what it historically stood for. You may have recalled over the last decade that this symbolism of the flag has been attacked. It's been devalued. People began to kneel at the national anthem. People began to claim that the flag is a symbol of enslavement, exploitation, abuse. Have you ever heard anything like this over the last decade? Why did these attacks? Such an attacks are not actually an attack against the flag. They're an attack against the government for which the flag stands. Likewise, the various attacks against the Bible Sabbath are not primarily about the Bible Sabbath. They're attacks to undermine and replace God's design law 
with human-imposed law in the minds of people and therefore see God in function and in character as an arbitrary rulemaker who makes up arbitrary rules and inflicts arbitrary penalties, who requires legal payments. And then when you worship that God and call him Jesus, you're actually worshiping Satan masquerading as Christ. Could a person wear the flag of one country, which marks them as being a member or loyal of that country, while actually being a traitor and fighting for the other side? Think about that when you consider any types of judgments you might want to make about another person who's worshiping on the day you do or on the day you don't. We can't know who's on the Lord's side by what day a person goes to church on. Exactly. So then what's the mark of the beast? Is it attending worship services on a day other than Saturday the Sabbath? Well, consider this quotation from Review and Herald, July 13, 1897. The time has come for the true light, the true light, to shine amid moral darkness. The third angel's message has been sent forth to the world, warning men against receiving the mark of the beast or of his image in their forehead or in their hands. To receive this mark means to come to the same decision the beast has done and to advocate the same ideas in direct opposition to the word of God. Understand, the Sabbath and the Sunday are signs or marks of belief systems. Do we believe God is creator and his laws are design laws? Or do we believe God is an imperial dictator who makes up rules like a Roman emperor and then enforces those rules? And if you believe that God is like that, you are beastly because you will think it's right and just to use the power of the state to punish people and coerce their consciences to make them do something to love their neighbor. Maybe get something put into their body they don't want because it's loving to do, and if we, and if we don't use the state, well, well, those are ignorant people anyway, and they're just being selfish, and, and we love people more than them, and it would be right and righteous to, to force them to do that and, and fire them from their job and restrict them from traveling and close down their churches because we only want to save lives. Beastly. Understand again, I've said this before, but it really brings the point home, and it, it's always, it was helpful to me to, to get my mind around this. Churches don't pass laws that their members are not required to breathe on bad pollution days because they understand the foolishness of that. People have to breathe. It's a law of respiration. So what does it mean about how a church sees God's law if they pass a law to change the Sabbath worship day to Sunday? It means they don't see it as a design law. They see it legislatively, that it is a subject to change. It can be changed, in fact. And the fact that the Roman church openly in their catechisms claimed that they changed the Sabbath to Sunday, and the Adventist church argues against that, they're, they're both missing the point. The fact that the day was changed isn't the primary problem. They also changed the second commandment, removing it about making images. And they also split the tenth into two, so we still have ten. People might have figured out something was going on when there's only nine commandments. So they split the tenth into two. After they deleted the second. Uh, changing God's law like this is an evidence that they believe it's changeable. It's amendable. And should be. Okay. And that it should be changed. But, but even whether you believe it should be or shouldn't be, the fact that, that, you, that you change it is evidence that you see it functioning like human law. They don't try to change the the design laws because they know like laws of respiration. And so the bigger change that happened to the law when the Roman church did this, all Protestants still accept God's law is changeable. God runs his universe like an imperial dictator. He has to enforce it. Justice requires external punishments. And that's the real corruption in Christianity. And so last quote, and we're going to end. This is Evangelism 234. 
But when the decree shall go forth, enforcing the counterfeit Sabbath, and the loud cry of the third angel shall warn men against the worship of the beast and his image, the line will be clearly drawn between the false and the true. Then those who still continued in transgression will receive the mark of the beast. Understand the mark of the beast is not about what day you go to church on. The mark of the beast are the methods we employ, the coercive enforcement of someone against someone's conscience to make them obey and behave the way we think they should behave. That's what gives people the mark of the beast. Coercive enforcement, that's beastly. And that's exactly how many Christians teach God will deal with sinners in the end. I love you. I sent my son to die for you, but if you don't, I'm required by law and justice to torture you and kill you. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the truth that you reveal. We thank you for this Sabbath day that you've built right into time, that all week long we can remember truth given in love, leaving us free, so that when we go out all week long, we live those principles of being lights of truth, presented in love, leaving others free all week long. And we celebrate this each week on your Sabbath day, the flag, the sign of your design law kingdom. And we embrace it, ask for your spirit to uh, be poured out and solidify us both intellectually and spiritually that we cannot be shaken from it. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.